Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a literary nonfiction podcast through which we tell true, maybe all too true stories. I'm Rebecca, one of your hosts tonight, accompanied by several new hosts. Hi, everyone. I'm Kira. I'm a new host with Life Out Loud, excited to virtually be joining you all tonight. And I'm Sophia, also virtually joining you all for the first time. Hi, everyone. I'm Danielle, another new host here at the podcast. Thank you for joining us tonight on the first episode of our sixth season entitled What Speaks in Silence. And I'm Karen. While we're excited to be back with a new episode, as a podcast, we're still doing our part in stopping the spread of COVID-19 by continuing to host podcasts virtually over Zoom. So the audio might be a little bit different from what you're used to as we're not in our usual studio, but the stories are just as impactful as always. Hey, everyone. I'm Leisha. As Karen said, we are all together virtually tonight. And in fact, tonight's episode features our first stories written about the pandemic. And I'm Leah. In this episode, two authors take the time to reflect on the quiet fear and deafening loneliness of the COVID-19 quarantine by using this global shutdown to revisit personal history and reframe their past with the present pandemic. Without further ado, let's get into the first story of the night. This first story is by returning author Daisy. Daisy is a 26-year-old actor and a born and raised New Yorker who continues to subscribe to the print edition of the New York Times. So let's take a listen to Daisy's story entitled Time and Other Beautiful Illusions. To set the scene, it is March of 2021. I'm laying in bed in my new disproportionately nice apartment. The suddenly affordable new standard of living is due to the COVID-19 pandemic and subsequently a mass exodus of residents from my beloved Upper West Side, where I've lived since I was a kid. I've spent the majority of the last year alone, introverted and introspective, constantly disappearing into my head. At times, because it seemed it's the only safe place to be. On this particular evening, I pick up a favorite book I've already read, and for whatever reason, something new stands out. A line around the third chapter. The author writes, time doesn't dictate impact. Have you ever read something that so profoundly fit your current worldview that you gasp aloud? You're able to validate every romantic notion and possible delusion because of one sentence that someone else wrote in a book. It was 11.30 p.m. I knew I wouldn't remember. Alexa, I say, to activate my tabletop robot servant. She comes to life. I ask her to remind me at 12 p.m. tomorrow that time doesn't dictate impact. Today at 25, I have been in love three times, three different ways. At 15, with naivete and intensity, eventually getting my heart broken for the first time. At 18, with learned trepidation, consciously staying for several years the partner whose love was bigger than mine. And most recently, at 23, accidentally and all at once, with someone I'd only spent one night with. After three years, I ended my first grown-up relationship, hoping that out there, if I dared to look, there might be something deeper. I quickly toppled headfirst into an on-again, off-again, mostly off, attachment with a skateboarder who would only reach out when he was really sad, really lonely, or occasionally both. I was obsessed with the idea of being chosen by him, a feeling I confused with love for the better part of a year. I felt sure that this was the passionate, almost cinematic attachment I'd left my relationship in search of. But in reality, I was being treated poorly, and for whatever reason, it felt good. Around the time I recovered some self-respect and officially called it quits with the skater, I met a man who was tall and just shy of 30. He had wild, deep-set eyes very similar to my own. Everything about him felt familiar and substantial. I needed to know him. We exchanged numbers, and after calculated deliberation with friends, I boldly texted to see if he wanted to get a drink. Two competition-level dates later, one early March night, We walked home from a bar a few blocks from my apartment. He lent me his gloves for warmth, and in the shadow of the new year, we held hands. 
I look back on this moment in particular with a fondness for who I was, someone younger and softer who was frequently told she was mature for her age. The problem with formative experiences is you rarely know in the moment that everything is changing, that your DNA is rearranging itself. It's something you can only realize in retrospect. We spent hours in each other's arms. He was completely forthcoming about the exhilarating way I made him feel and how special this was for him, making sweeping promises about places we'd go and things we'd do. He was amazed by how much we had to say to each other, remarking that along with all the other things we did so well, he couldn't believe how good we were at simply talking. And I bowled over by his sincerity, naturally high from deep connection and dopamine, felt safe to divulge more than one is supposed to with a new partner. Laughing with his mouth pressed against mine, eventually asking him, why would anybody ever leave you? I truly couldn't understand why anyone would ever discard him and how I'd gotten so lucky to be on this planet, in this moment, under these blankets with this seemingly perfect person. We kissed until 4 a.m. when I finally insisted we sleep. We flipped over back to back. Our feet remained intertwined as my imagination started to picture a life together. I wondered what would happen now that we had found each other. I saw myself in jewel-toned slip dresses, accompanying him to friends' weddings. When the alarm went off at 10 the next morning, there was a detectable shift. It seemed whatever door was wide open the night before had closed over. He wasn't himself, or, it occurred to me, maybe this was actually him. Maybe the night before he was caught up in a moment or a feeling. After all, I guess we didn't really know each other very well. Within 10 minutes of opening our eyes, he was out the door and on his way home, texting me en route to the subway, a simple, FYI, it's cold. I responded with a cheerful emoji and asked him how I'd ever stay warm without his gloves. And that was that. At this point, this was all pretty common to me. We meet, we date, we have sex, we tell secrets and have sex again. And in the dusty morning light through my basement apartment windows, things feel different. These men leave, usually for good. They fade away, swiftly becoming anecdotes to be shared and dissected with friends and acquaintances over dinner or coffee and pastries. Eventually, there's always someone else who looks similar or who's taller or who texts back in a more timely manner. In the months that followed, I found myself devouring music, books, movies, and TV of all genres and time periods, acting as a kind of romance anthropologist, looking for clues as to why we were no longer involved. Coming up empty-handed, I turned to grassroots spirituality, Meditating with rose quartz at my heart chakra, seeing past life regressionists and astrologers all in search of answers. Perhaps he and I had met in another lifetime, or maybe 2019 was just a really confusing year for Capricorns. I was trying desperately to figure out why our connection had been so powerful and was hoping to put together the pieces of why he left, all with the aim that I'd begin to unspool why this specific rejection felt so profound. I hoped that the more time that passed, the less I'd care. I thought if I could put months between us with no contact, maybe I'd begin to feel like myself again, and eventually, I'd belt empowering breakup songs in the shower and really mean them. I decided to go back to therapy. Soon after, I reunited with an ex-boyfriend, then quickly broke up. At the behest of my therapist, I dated a totally new guy who went to Brown, had a pierced ear, and loved cats. That quickly dissolved without much fanfare. I was doing everything I could think of to move on, while admittedly, often thinking back to my winter before with Glove Guy, his silly drink order, his flat-brimmed baseball cap, his quiet breathing as he slept next to me. I still remembered everything so vividly. A year after that initial night, the pandemic hit New York City, and with it, the reality of an imminent shutdown. I was extremely reluctant to leave Manhattan. As someone who was born and raised here, it felt wrong to abandon my home in such a confusing, chaotic time. After losing my job, I ultimately decided to go south to be with my mother. I'm ashamed to admit that the pandemic provided a distraction from the ongoing soap opera in my head. In the constant unknown that surrounded me during this period, it was easy not to think about him, or our night a year earlier, or the way he made me feel. A few months later, I quietly turned 25 and everything was okay. In August, back home in New York, I found out from a mutual friend that he was moving to the West Coast with his new girlfriend. I crumpled to my knees, alone in my apartment, wrapped in a towel, still damp from the shower. By this point, him and I hadn't so much as talked in almost a year. I'd purposely not stayed updated on his whereabouts. 
seeing him with someone else, even through a screen, was painful to the point where checking in on him via Instagram started to feel almost masochistic. And as far as I knew, he didn't know where I was either. He'd never even bothered to ask. What surprised me most about my reaction was a gnawing, unshakable fear. I was scared I'd never see him again. Up until this point, I hadn't used the word love when referring to the way I felt about him. While it looked and felt like heartbreak, my consistent narrative was that I thought we had potential. I felt robbed of the things we'd never do or say. The mornings we wouldn't wake up together and the meals we wouldn't share. Surely this was a kind of acute disappointment to call it love felt juvenile and reflective of someone with less experience. Love was a word reserved for real relationships and if not defined relationships, then at least flings that lasted more than one night. However, no one else was surprised. Best friends had apparently known all along that I'd been in love with him and that he'd broken my heart. I'd spent over a year trying to think practically, hoping I could rationalize my affection away, attempting to be pragmatic by using the short amount of time we spent together as a tool to consistently invalidate my big feelings thinking that refusing to understand my emotions could fix the parts of me that broke under the weight of his rejection. Since then, in the silence of necessary social isolation and my current unemployment, I've had the empty space to come to terms with something previously unthinkable, that my 12 hours in bed with someone I hardly knew meant more than my three-year relationship, that someone I haven't spoken to in over a year is still a person I think of every single day, that time really doesn't dictate impact after all. I became who I am because of him and even more because of his absence. I've learned that the depth that heartbreak leaves is expansive, second only to the expansion one feels when falling into mutual requited love. I'm not sure if we'll ever see each other again. I'm not sure if we'll ever talk about what happened. And most importantly, I'm not sure when my feelings for him will change, but I'm learning to live with them. Like the face masks we're required to wear in public in respect for those around us. Uncomfortable, but necessary. Even though it didn't end the way I expected and would have wanted, I am thankful to know what it feels like to love and be loved in such a beautiful, completely unexpected way. Rather than continue to torment myself asking if or why or how, I've decided to push forward, eager for a new connection waiting with bated breath for when we can safely gather so I can continue to fearlessly chase that I-need-to-know-him feeling, however long it takes. Thankfully, I have the time. Oh, wow, 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 wow. What a powerful ending there, huh? <laughs> Thank you so, so, so much for joining us today and for sharing this wonderful piece. Oh, yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, for sure. So. There's a couple of questions that we have for you in regards to your story. First of all, there's almost an air of nonchalance in this piece, although you discuss the topics of romantic heartbreak and the pandemic. Yet you still hit us with lines like, quote, I became who I am because of him and even more because of his absence, unquote. What influenced your decision in setting the tone like this? Was it difficult to write of such daunting topics? It's so interesting that you said that. I haven't, I don't think I've noticed that I did that yet, truthfully. Um, I think if I have to, I, I know it was subconscious because as you were saying it, I was like, oh my God, I did totally do that. So I, you're right. <laughs> um, but I, I would say, I have to imagine that by the time I was really looking at what had happened and how it had affected me, so much time had passed mm. and I really feel like when things I don't want to negate how much it hurt because it was so bad right <laughs> when it was happening or it felt so bad when it was happening but um there was so much time that I really could I really could gain perspective on the situation which mm -hmm. I have to imagine the only reason it was it felt that calm or quote-unquote nonchalant was that there'd been an immense amount of space between the event and when I had written about it. Right. Um, I think I have to imagine that's why, but please, I mean, please know that that was definitely not on purpose. Um, <laughs> I, I can't imagine what my texts and my voicemails and phone calls <laughs> to my friends sounded like within the 
<laughs> the days and weeks that followed. Oh boy. <laughs> initial, the initial situation. But um, yeah, I, d- I definitely didn't do it on purpose. I think I have to, I, I would say it was probably the time that had passed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So another question we had was in one of your final paragraphs when you write, um, quote, my best friends had apparently known all along that I'd been in love with him and that he'd broken my heart, end quote. And if you don't mind talking about it, what was that, like, was there a final, like, aha moment for you that made you realize you were in love with this person that you'd interacted with so briefly? Or was it, like, something that you realized had happened gradually? Um, I remember a conversation I had with my mom, maybe, like, four or five months after. And I, I should preface this by saying, I think that there's a, I read once, like, in some magazine or something that, like, there's two, there's two times when like something's really over. There's when it's really over and there's when you stop and it's when you stop believing it's going to come back. Mm -hmm. And I think until I stopped like really believing that it was, it was like, he was going to come back, which I, I certainly believed for quite some time, quietly believed, but really believed. Um, I don't think I was able to actually let it go. Um, so, but to answer your question, I think that I talked, I talked to my mom a couple, a couple months after it happened and she'd said something in terms of like, well, you know, like, I think you really had your heart broken. Like, it's weird, but like, you really had your heart broken. And I was like, oh, you know, I guess I was, Mm -hmm. I I did. And I think that being able to admit it, like, outwardly I think there's things we know within ourselves like I know I knew very early that I that I really loved him but once again I think like the passage of time and how difficult it was for me to like grasp onto anyone or anything else um I probably knew very early that I loved him but it took so long for me to accept it mm-hmm. But even though it was something I knew until you start talking about something and really thinking about it, you know, you don't really, you don't really, you don't really realize you're going through it. So, um, yeah, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't an immediate thing. I probably, it it was not an immediate thing in terms of like, this is how I feel. I think I just thought it was like another city encounter. And then slowly but surely I started realizing like, Oh no, this was definitely, um, more formative and more important and um, ultimately more painful than, than past experiences. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. part, part of that had to do with your realization about time too, because yes. when you started to really realize that it didn't matter that you'd only spent one day with someone, you could mm-hmm. still love them. Yeah. You had yeah. such an interesting line where it was like, so I, I don't have it directly in front of me, but it was like, I, I didn't even realize how much this one night mattered more than my three-year relationship. And that line hit hard. I was like, damn, some, no. some relationships do be like that. <laughs> it's crazy that you can spend years and years like living with someone and then you can have something so much more meaningful with someone that you know so much less, but mm-hmm. it feels like you know more. And that's what was hard to come to terms with is like, how do I move on from something that's so short term? And ultimately, this wasn't a question that was asked. What I'm discovering is that, like, it's so easy to really fall for someone Mm -hmm. quickly if it's right. You know, it's it's harder when you really have to get to know someone. Um, And I think that's why, like, in my mind, it remained this big romantic thing for so long because it was this constant unknown. And it it was just it was just so special, you know, it was easy to like build a future on one night when I never got more than that. Mm. Yeah, you know, something my mom actually says is that time doesn't really matter at all. It's like your connection and the feelings you actually have with like another person. And that's like something that's super big for me. And I can definitely feel it with like what you're saying and like you're so you so far. So this actually leads to my question, like in your story, you use like a lot of phrase for scenes, like throughout your entire piece and you kind of tell us more about your third love like his wild deep set eyes that are very similar to your own and like um you show us like the moment with the gloves when you guys like walk into the apartment and you describe like your efforts to get over him like how you went like you threw yourself into the music and the books and the tv and like 
all sorts of different things and like the time period and you even turn to like spirituality and you know you seek like past life regressionists and astrologists and you know in search of all these answers so could you kind of like maybe describe why you selected these intimate yet brief moments for your braids i think it was important like when i went back to write it um probably like six months ago not all that long in the like 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 sequence of what had happened but when i went to write it there was a lot of um like healing in actually putting what had happened onto the page and like seeing it in front of me um and and it felt like sort of like proclaiming to the universe like yes i did love him and like yes i'm interested in not loving him anymore um and i i i don't think i was i once this is it's such this is like such a similar response to the answer i just gave i don't think i was doing it on purpose but it felt looking back in retrospect i could see how like my absorption of the media and my absorption of like art over the course of the last 2 years had been so um so particularly based in feeling like seen by what had happened i felt mm -hmm. like like what had happened to me was so unusual and so confusing that um, all all different kinds of art, any any kind of art that I could absorb that felt similar made me feel more grounded and comfortable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I didn't, I didn't, I certainly didn't mean for it to braid things together like that. But I, um, I think it became like books and TV and like movies and music even if they were done badly like even if they weren't good became so important because any like little similarity i could pick out made me feel like less insane for what i was feeling and that's why they became so important and i think that's why like especially like i real i literally went to a past life regressionist like i took my unemployment money and i i like hired a woman from colorado to tell me if i'd met him before like that's i want to i want to let all these 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 beautiful people know i literally did that and I no. hope that <laughs> you do that. Um, if you do, it's totally okay, and you can text me. Um, <laughs> but I was, I was just trying. I was like grasping at straws because I couldn't talk about it with him. And ultimately, you have these. We have these intimate experiences with people, and the only people that are there are are us and the person that we're there with. And um, I was just trying to feel less alone. I think. Mm yeah the closure yeah I, I definitely feel that i feel that you yeah. find all your answers where you can yeah yeah like looking for answers anywhere i could and um you know my past life reader was great but uh, there were <laughs> where i was like falling on my couch like yeah you're right that is how it feels someone gets huh. it. <laughs> i might need her number you know sponsor for the show <laughs> <laughs> Sponsored by Jody's Energy out of Denver, Colorado. <gasps> wow. Okay, so I have a question. I actually want to take it back to this concept of time that you're using throughout the story. So you consistently refer back to this phrase, time doesn't dictate impact. So I'm wondering, what does time mean to you now? And what role, if any, time has played in how you've moved forward from past relationships? And also you start your piece by talking about COVID and isolation. So I'm wondering if you think that isolation changed how you respond to similar relationships you've gotten into. Hmm. It's a really interesting question. Um, I remember being a kid or like an adolescent and watching Sex and the City. And there's this episode <laughs> uh -oh. where Charlotte's, Charlotte's going through a breakup and someone says to her, like, you know, it takes half the time, she's like, it takes half the time you've dated someone to get over them. And I think I thought of moving, I thought of moving past relationships and I thought of moving through things. And um, I thought that I could, that I could think of things in finite terms, which is like, okay, so if I went on two dates with someone over the course of three weeks, you know, what does it take to get over them? a week and a half? Easy. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't mean it like that. No, no, you're right. It is like, oh, really? Good. Okay, sure. Um, no, I really, I real for, there was a time where I really, I thought that things could be dictated in, in those finite terms, which they obviously can't be. I mean, like that makes no account for 
how we feel and who we are and who the other person is and what it felt like. Um, mm -hmm. I think that I'm a, I'm a very punctual on time person. I always have been like, I'm very, I'm very good with time and I understand time. So time is important to me. Um, and I thought that I think like what it really, what I'm realizing as I'm talking about it is that just another way time intertwines with, with, with what I felt is that you think time enough time will help you get over something. But if you don't give yourself the space in that time to acknowledge the implications and the expanse of what's happened, you have no hope in moving forward. And I think that that's the, that I've, I've been in, I've, I've dated since, since COVID's been over and I've fallen in love since I wrote the story. And I think that, I, which I never thought would happen, but I don't think it's any coincidence that it took, it took this long to move past a heartbreak and it took this long to find someone else. And so I don't, this is, this is not, not a great answer to your question. So I'm really sorry. Um, but I think that it's definitely changed the way in which I, I'm, I'm, I view like there's a, this is, this is like, this is very like, this is very Jody's energy, very spiritual. So bear with me guys. But there is a, you know, there's a big tree at the Museum of Natural History. We've all probably seen it like the big, that huge like slice of tree. And mm -hmm. I was there a couple months ago after I'd written this, after I'd really come to terms with this idea that time doesn't dictate impact. And there's this little, I'd never noticed it before. And like, as I said, a thousand times, I grew up here. Mm -hmm. I, I've been there, um, I've been there so many times. There's a plaque in front of it with a smaller slice of a different tree. And there's this note under the smaller slice. And it says, you know, just because this other tree is bigger, doesn't mean it's older. This smaller slice of tree is actually a thousand years older than this huge piece of redwood. Oh, wow. And I saw wow. it when I, I know, and I saw it when I was babysitting and I was like, oh my God, that's literally what happened. It's like a beautiful nature, like visual look at what happened. Um, so in terms of how I view time, I think I'm a little more relaxed with it, which I think is a good thing. And I think that the the gift that this that this period has given me is is the time and the space to treat myself with a little bit more humility and kindness and you know give myself the time to actually go through what I'm going through as opposed mm -hmm. to just like you know waiting for the minutes to pass, waiting to meet someone who feels right, waiting for enough time to pass that it just doesn't matter anymore because ultimately if you don't if you don't work through something or think about something enough, it doesn't matter how much time passes. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. When you decided to write this story, was that when you got over this issue or was it, be, um, was your decision to write the story a way to help you get through this situation? Um, I definitely wrote it. I definitely wrote it while I was still very much in the thick of it and the thick of feeling what I was feeling. And it seemed as though I'd probably see the person it's about kind of soon. It seemed like thing, it was that period in March or April when things were kind of turning and like we were all starting to get our shots and things were kind of turning around. And I, it was so cold and I felt so isolated and I was, I hadn't gotten sick yet. And I was so scared of becoming ill that I felt like I needed some kind of, um, creative outlet. And, um, I'm, I like to write, but I'm not a writer because I can only write when I really feel like I have something to write about. Um, and I don't think I, I think in writing it, I had the perspective, I, I finally had perspective on the situation, but, and, and I inadvertently, this did help me move on, which is crazy. Um, mm -hmm. But going into it, I, I wish I was smart enough to be like, I'm going to write this and I'm going to feel better, but I certainly didn't. And I definitely <laughs> was over it when I wrote it, which is, it's so interesting to go back months later and be like, oh my God, I haven't thought about some of these details in so long. Um, mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to see now. Right. 
So it's kind of interesting because you mentioned before that it wasn't until you started talking about it more that it became real. And I find that to be something that that a lot of people find where like Mm -hmm. until you start talking about it, until you like get it down on paper, until it's out, it doesn't feel like it's happening, even if it is definitely happening. So it's interesting. Earlier, you were saying it wasn't until you talked to like your mom. And in the story, you said until you talk to your friends. And then now, even when you're talking about, okay, it's finally down on paper and it's helping me to process through everything. Yeah. And actually, this is there's, this is sort of a pedagogical concept called uh, writing to learn. So it's like a new wave. Um, and like in the past 10 years or so, uh, a lot of professors and teachers have been incorporating reflective writing where they ask students to write out how they solve the problem, like mm. the math problem, or how they did the research writing process or how they did blah, 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 because the actual act of writing it out makes you realize the things you don't know or the things you do know, or, right. you know, mm. um, and there's other ways that writing to learn can work. But that's just, I mean, as you're saying it, I was like, oh, this is writing to learn oneself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I think, like, I talked about it I talked about it so much in therapy, but not recently. And I think that seeing like really, I spent like, I spent months kind of like trying to really get it down, but, um, and like real, like, like months sort of making the story what it is. Um, but I don't think there was any, there was any more singular, one singular thing I did to, um, really move forward from it than writing the story. It was it was immensely helpful. I had no idea that was a thing, Kristen. <laughs> That's so interesting. Uh, yeah, but this has been like a wonderful interview because I feel like there is just so much like of that learning that has happened. And it's like, we've seen, like we've like analyzed the time in the story and then also the time that happened after the story and like the parts in the story that like, um, and, and like your story as a whole and not just like what was written down and that you shared with us, but all of the different ways that that has kind of like played into this. And it's been mm-hmm. really wonderful. And I honestly, the part about the redwood tree is going to stick with me for forever. It's it really, it, it's, it was, that was huge for me. It's so, it's so silly. It's, it's, you know, it's so like spiritual and like, you know, but it really, it really meant a lot to me when I saw it. I'm glad that I could, I could share that with you. Of course. And I'm sure our listeners are really going to like, that's something that's sick. We were were all like, oh, whoa, (laughs) because it's just, it's so true and resonating. And I feel like that's something that's also going to stick with our listeners as well. Um, So once again, Daisy, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much. Wonderful. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully we'll see you again soon. Yes. Have a wonderful rest of your night. This story is by a new author and seasoned host to the podcast, Sam Stutoff. Sam Stutoff is a shockingly competent John Jay student and a proud cat father of two who recently left behind a wildly successful career in the rock and roll world of making strangers coffee. He's studying to be a full-time writer of some sort, anything to avoid waking up at 6 a.m. to explain what a macchiato is. Let's take a listen to this piece by Sam. It's been a quiet year somehow. All the chaos of the world happened while we were forced to stay inside. Avoid it whenever possible. The first thing that goes numb is the sense of time, like I've been sitting on one side for far too long, and now my whole arm's gone limp. I'd reach out and grab my phone, but my hand couldn't find a grip. It's like my arm and this dimension are just out of phase, and I have to sit and wait for things to sync up again. It's like that, but with weeks. I try and touch them, and it's all just jelly. When you do finally wrap your mind around them, another few drifted by. It's been a year of fear and grief, too. Lost not just weeks, but friends, family, time together, replaced by the same day. Repeated. The bend in time takes that fear and grief and warps it, too. It's all there is, or beyond your touch at the same time, it all swirls around and you're forced to sit inside and watch the debris fly by. 
and you're still in your eerie, quiet house. Or all those weeks are piled up, waiting to just rubber band back on you, still terrified to step outside, even with newfound protection against the cause of this tempest. It's a fear I had before as well, but not always. When I was little, I wasn't trepidatious. The first few years of my childhood, I was bold. One day I decided to climb a tree all the way up to the power lines. I succeeded, but was spit out on my way down, tumbling, tumbling down, hitting branches here and there, before plopping down at the bottom, <laughs> laughing. Wasn't always that lucky, though, as I was chasing my dog Smokey in the blazing Indonesian summer heat up and down our yard, I turned too quickly, wobbled a bit, and fell to the ground. A perfect, benign act of physical comedy. You half expect when kids get their feet all tangled up and tumble to the ground to pull a little instruction manual out the back of their pockets, just see what exactly went wrong. In my case, though, I learned a valuable lesson. Sometimes you just can't count on things to be the things that you expect. A soft green yard, for instance, can have a strange piece of cement sticking out from an old clothesline long since rusted away. You also can't expect elbows to stay together, especially when you need them. The rest is far less vivid, in a flash my arms encased in what feels like a metric ton of plaster. And so, applying this newfound lesson, I learned that summers too aren't always what you'd expect them to be. So I'd watch my friends playing in the same yard that betrayed me, all from the window, and turn inwards instead. Reading books, making sweeping narratives with my Legos and toy soldiers, I found that equally rewarding as well. Time flew by, and soon enough, I found myself learning to trust that treacherous grass again, much to Smokey's delight. The trepidation never went away, though, and the lesson I learned was soon applied to other areas. My dislocated elbow was just the beginning of my travails outdoors. A portent, really. Both myself and my mother would get rather ill from things unfortunately common in the tropics. At five years old, I got dengue. And she got typhoid. At the same time as each other. So we were thrown into a small plane and up into the sky towards safety. In the form of a hospital in a much larger city. Again... There was an inescapable quietness all around me. For a solid week, my mom could only read The Hobbit to me while she recovered. I sensed it was more for her to feel like she was still capable of helping me while I was sick. But with nothing else to do, I was happy for the company. While she convalesced, I was able to have the run of this alien place. The hospital where we stayed for over a month. It was white, white all over almost. In my mind, even the surrounding jungle, the sidewalks, and myself took on that sterile whiteness. Slowly but surely, I got to escape the white confines of the hospital, often just to sit and watch Power Rangers at one of the nearby houses. A forbidden treat. Naturally, Power Rangers were demons. Lots of things were demons, I was told. As I came to learn later, we were what's called Charismatic Christians. It's a sect of Christianity born from early 19th century tent revivals and soapbox preachers. Inherent to the belief is a more active understanding of the Holy Spirit, uh, the red-headed stepchild of the Holy Trinity. Ever since I was a kid, I could remember people rolling on floors, waving hands, babbling supposedly foreign languages, hands being laid on during prayer. Another important tenet was the call to witness to others, though only my parents seemed to take that part seriously. My father grew up wanting to fly planes, and my mother loved to teach, and upon reading some books about missionary pilots, felt that was their calling. Impressive, really, considering how a majority of those books ended for the missionaries. So, 
in the spring of 1992, with their training and education mostly done, they plopped me and my two siblings down on a small island off the coast of Borneo. During the day, my dad flew supplies into villages. My mom would listen to the radio and log coordinates, anxiously anticipating the worst. Us kids would bound up the hill to our little school, joining the other missionary kids. After school, my brother and I would waddle back down that hill and spend time with our Indonesian neighbors. We'd trade some of our snacks for the lovely, brightly colored cookies they generously shared, while my parents focused on their important work. We were left to explore the surrounding rainforest, play in abandoned bunkers from World War II, use my bike to run over a cobra that was twisting towards my little brother, that sort of thing. So much of the American fear that was eventually directed towards my Indonesian and Muslim friends later in my life was held up against this time and could only come off as looking grotesque and ignorant. Eventually, that was a lesson that would crystallize. But darting from my pristine, squint-inducing white rooms and towards the neighbor's television, I was beginning to learn that things aren't always what they're supposed to be. And so I watched anyway, despite any impact on my soul it may have. And it turns out they weren't demons, just kids who got these coins that made them good at karate. I got lost in front of that TV for hours, watching all the other things that was probably told that were demons, like Ninja Turtles or G.I. Joe. It was a comfort, taking me away from a terrifyingly ill mother and somewhere else entirely. And there I learned another invaluable life lesson, that a great many of the world's troubles could be eased sitting in front of a television. Thankfully, my mother recovered, but we are forced to leave our tropical home sent back to the States, a place I'd never really known, or cared to know. <sighs> Much of my life, I'd spent mourning these segments, memories. If only I had stayed, or never been, or never returned, or never went again. <laughs> it seemed like a cavalcade of changes, a endless barrage of change. Now, though, I'm learning to be grateful for these parts of my life. I had, by sheer accident, been trained for this long, or short, who can really say, quiet year, inoculated to catastrophe. Even saying quiet still doesn't fit. It was a quiet year in the sense that bomb shelters are quiet for most of their lives. Decades upon decades of perfect silence, until they are very, very unquiet. It was quiet in the sense that tornadoes are, in very specific places and for very specific times. I've heard it's theoretically possible to walk the entire path of a tornado, destruction whirling all around you, and you, serenely, witnessing it all. That very specific safe place was my home as it was for everyone else. Outside churned with chaos and destruction, taking me back to those sterile walls. The lost summer. A place I'd long since walled off and moved on from. <sighs> One of the gifts and the curses of being raised overseas. <sighs> A term I hate, too. There are many seas. Which have I traversed? Why is it the seas surrounding our silly little country represent a profound border, which makes mentioning traversing them important? Certainly no Italian sails over to Egypt and says, yes, I'm from overseas. Anyway, the gift and curse you get growing up abroad, a much better term, is that Americanness is suddenly no longer opaque. When I first stepped foot back in LAX, in my home country, back from the only country I really truly knew at that point, I asked my mom, why were there so many white people? <laughs> now, that sensation has atrophied. 
I've taken it for granted that my parents took us overseas pursuing their dreams of being missionaries. My father fulfilled his dream of being a pilot with a purpose. My mother's fulfilling her dream of teaching now. It took for granted that I'd navigated not just my own traumatic brush with death, but my mother's as well. I'd taken for granted that despite the weight of my cast on my scrawny four-year-old frame, it barely deterred me from swinging one-handed from the top of our rickety, rusty swing set. I took it for granted that I bounced from that world back to our American one without missing a step. So I resolved to stop taking it for granted. This time, instead of books and Legos or Power Rangers, I turned to college, a particularly favorite crutch of my generation. When in doubt, school it out, I always say. In my case, I've had a long and tempestuous relationship with schooling. Part of it is natural, being raised by a teacher, forced to stay trapped in the school place, long after all your friends had gone home. Again, let loose while my mother was held captive. This time, much less dramatically, to grading papers. All the magic and mystery my friends placed on the school was lost to me. Never trust doors to always be locked, or secret hallways to be watched. Same too with teachers. Their power goes away after the bell, and then they're just people. Friends you get to know sometimes, or grumps looking to be left alone. <laughs> Either way, vulnerable. So when others saw mandates, I just saw a suggestion. The veil was broken. As long as I stayed cute and a teacher's kid, I was able to get away with not doing homework all the time. Sadly, that wasn't always the case. My kiddish cuteness ran out about after I turned into a dreaded teen. My mom got a new job as a pastor and was forced to fend for myself. We had also returned overseas. And then, unbelievably, came back again. Uh, forcing me to relive all the trauma and memories of our last term. But this time, with bonus hormones! I was, again, in the States and this time had no interest in reacquainting myself. I again found solace in TV, and now the video games attached to them. Knowing that school was a crude assemblage of human beings trying to tell you to do stuff, I rather happily just ignored it. I was perfectly able to learn the things that interested me, which was mostly how bad America was as a country, both now and throughout history, which is not hard. The inescapable, opaque filter of Americanness spread across everything I saw, and it disgusted me. I hated how everything I saw pulled my focus towards it. No corner of my life could ever be rid of it, except the dark peacefulness of my room, and my computer, and my un-American friends on the other side of that computer. And again, I withdrew. For some reason, computers were thankfully not demons, so I was mostly able to freely browse. I found there was a multitude of people who were also not fans of this country, and they too weren't demons. Just people with tremendous empathy for other human beings. I set about learning their ways. They had disciples too. Marx, Kropotkin, Bakunin, Goldman, Chomsky, all became my preferred saints. So much so, I'd forgotten that I was in community college and preferred to read my own books. Again, knowing that school was just a crude assemblage of people telling me what to do, I was not particularly bothered that I'd gotten a lot of Fs. I'd tried off and on since that first try to go back, prove myself in some way, either for me or my parents. I was never sure, but each try had resulted in resounding failure. Resounding in the way mortar fireworks are, and you can hear them for miles, windows shaking, dogs hiding, resounding failure. It felt as if the reverberations followed me everywhere, too. Constant failure passing through everyone I met. For a time, 
that too was inescapable. Until this year. This horrific, beautiful, quiet year. School was, as I've said, a crude assemblage of people telling me what to do. And yet, I'd failed to apply one of the first lessons I'd learned to it. What if it wasn't what I told myself it was? This year, instead of other people, school was just me. What if school could be waking up at 10 in the morning and not 7 because people told you what to do? What if I could sit down after making my cup of coffee with a kitty in my lap and do the things I was supposed to because it was just me? And I wanted to. And I knew I could. And somehow, this entire year, I have. It has been a quiet year. A long year of quiet. Deeply personal successes in the midst of a constant tornado. Successes that look like listening to lovely stories from fellow students. Well told. Sitting back and listening to them tell it as clearly as our tornado can allow. Struggling with emails and attachments in a downloads folder you should have tidied up ages ago. <laughs> and putting on a nice half outfit for digital meetings. Getting to talk to people other than your roommates for the first time in a few weeks somehow? It has been a hard, busy, quiet year. <sighs> so what now? This semester, I'd love telling other people's stories, finding out how they made them, what they wanted to say, and helping share it in some small way. It's been an excellent escape in contrast from what I've been most compelled to do, and that's peer from the window at the swirling chaos outside in the form of Twitter and the news. Now we've seen the wind slow a bit, and the eye of the storm has widened and widened, and I'm still sitting inside, and I'm struck with the same fear I felt watching the kids play as my arm healed. There's an endless amounts of what-ifs and directions my mind loves to race down. Feels like the entire world, too, is a bit loath to stick our heads out, take a walk in the sunshine, too, but at the same time so eager to just run around and splash in the puddles of this storm we just weathered. For me, though, I'm just trying to remember that little boy getting his cast off, stretching it out, giving it a good itch, and running out to chase that goofy dog again. Think he's still in there somewhere. <sighs> Glad I've had this year, this quiet year, to find him. <sighs> this is just one of my favorites of all time. Mm -hmm. It, like, ah, it is just so good. And I, as I was saying earlier, sometimes with the stories that are just, like, exceptional and that resonate and, like, tie up well and are just so good it's difficult to even write questions for them so mm -hmm. a lot of this is just kind of like us geeking out about it and I'm we are so happy Sam to have you here like showing us that like your writing side because you've been a host on the podcast oh, for yeah. like a few semesters now at this point <laughs> and are seasoned and like know how know how we do things in this way and so getting to see you in this light it's just excellent because it's yeah. such so good yeah and thanks so much for sharing such a beautiful piece with us for sure happy to do it I, it was a it coincidentally worked out really well to have like a, a piece kind of at the end of uh, having done all that hosting stuff I, I felt like it was a really nice way to kind of end the semester oh. yeah i couldn't agree with karen and rebecca more sam i absolutely loved your piece and i noticed that throughout your story, you braid in different moments of your childhood, you know, from dislocating your elbow to spending time abroad in Indonesia. And in doing so, you showcase a sense of isolation in different years of your life. Um, and you tie up this braid very nicely by referring back to the global pandemic that we were all experiencing at the time. Um, so what part of this experience was like your aha moment in which you realized that you've been in this situation of isolation, 
even though like not this specific situation before? Yeah, no, that's a phenomenal question. It's kind of tied together by that initial dislocation of my elbow, like that, that feeling of like literal entrapment, like as a kid, there's nothing like you can imagine more like containing and more restraining than like your arm being like stuck in a cast. Right. And this was also mm-hmm. overseas too, where it's, it's a plaster cast. It's like the ones you see in mm-hmm. old movies. It's not the, like the cool fiberglass ones. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was very resonant to that experience. So like that was the initial one that popped up and then also being afraid of being sick for the whole year tied into some of the other experiences I had as well and it it was kind of like a peeling away the layers of like oh wow it was actually like a lot of experiences mm-hmm. yeah yeah you when you lived abroad did you um like you, you, there was a constant fear of being sick is that what you mean well just like this year of feeling sick and then also just having gotten sick as a kid and having people close to me endangered by just like um getting sick as well like there's that kind of resonant connection. It took a while to like unpack that like degree of fear I was feeling around it too, like right. this year and realizing like, oh, like I had a pretty formative experience. Mm-hmm. Like this was helpful too, to kind of unpack that and process that too. Mm-hmm. Right. In your story, you mentioned this Americanness and un-American qualities either you or your friends had. Did these feelings contribute to your self-isolation? And if so, what were the steps you took to reintegrate yourself into American society throughout your life? Or did you find yourself still at the wayside until the finale of learning how to share your story with others? Oof. Uh, yeah, that's a, another great question. I, I think I'm going to struggle that, with that identity process for the rest of my life, really, because there's, there's certain formative experiences you have as an individual that like are going to contribute to you realizing you just process things differently than people right right than people around you that you care about and connect with and they're just not going to have those experiences and like it it is in like a a very specific way kind of isolating and like an introspective personal way that like it's really hard to um sometimes just like physically embody that differentiation between like i like didn't know what tacos were until I was like (laughs) much older than I care to admit. Mm. Like I grew up like also being fluent in a language I've since forgotten, but like just, it just feels like really alien in a way that like, how do I even begin to communicate these experiences with people that like are, have had a pretty, as I would like project myself into it, a normal childhood. Right. Yeah. Normal American childhood. Uh, Yeah. A very uniform experience really. Truly. I was reading your story. It was like I was put in two different worlds, like one world where everything is quiet and remote and peaceful and sound. And then another world where everything is just so busy and everything's just so new around you. So you get a piece of your old self in this, in the place where you actually grew up, but Mm -hmm. you get new parts of you. We get to, we were exposed to like new parts of you too, when you came back to America. So with that being said, throughout the piece, there seems to be a disinterest or even a distaste of American and Americanness. At one point you write, I was again in the States and this time had no interest in reacquainting myself. Just out of curiosity, now that you're older, have you ever thought about leaving America? Uh, that question, to be honest, like I would love, I still have the crate, I <laughs> packed all my things up when I was a kid and shipped off to Indonesia. Like I still use it to store stuff. Like oh. occasionally I'll like look over it and just be like, back mm-hmm. up, get out of here anytime. Um, it's, there's always going to be that appeal. And I think one of the comforts of having been raised cross-culturally and um, really been able to experience that, the resilience it takes to like experience other cultures and kind of just humble yourself to that process. Um, it is a transferable skill and this is something you can apply again in life. Um, but also at the same time, like I have settled, especially in New York, like of all places where like it is <laughs> imagined, I think it's like it's in, in all the best place um, that like I can experience that same like cultural dynamism that I, I experience overseas just every day, getting up and going about my like hopping on the train, going to going to the store. Like the, it's an energy that I think that becomes like 
really just like how you connect to mm. the world um, if you're lucky enough to like really see it and experience it and appreciate it and I think a lot of my hostility came from the fact that I was in a very sterile place like a very conservative Christian part of the country and it was kind of intentionally meant to be um, monocultural and like that, yeah. that process that they went to ensure that like just graded against a lot of my my own just direct experiences so I guess both. <laughs> right. right, both. And I I really want to ask because of like the works that you um, mentioned specifically as like, um, you know, inspiring you and like giving you a new outlook and, you know, mm-hmm. um, if there's like a movement part of that too, if there's like an active part that's also not just kind of like within you, I'm, I'm just curious about that as, yeah. as a thing. For sure. Like it's, the formative things that like when I came to America the second when I came back to America the second time and was in a further advanced in like my learning process and was figuring out how to understand things in my own lens like it was really helpful to have really systemic criticisms of this place that I was like living in and at the time I came back to the states in 2004 like three years after 9-11 and mm. deep, deep in the Bush administration. Right. And coming back from a, like, very proudly, very, like, culturally Muslim country to the United States where it was in, structurally set up to be hateful of that ideology and of that cultural experience. Mm. And, like, wow. I, I kind of had no no choice of it to, like, identify with this place that I had emotionally connected and, mm-hmm. like, had built relationships with people there. Mm-hmm. brought that back to the states and just had like i i could not in good conscience like not challenge a lot of the the ideology that i experienced so like it is it was fun just trying to like push up against the anti-immigration stat like uh right. a lot of my mm-hmm. teachers had and were directly trying to um evangelize my students and yeah yeah like, but- that built into me wanting to be more participatory and things like that mm-hmm. It sounds like even though you're an American, you had like kind of like a culture shock coming back, which I think is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, lastly, like what, if anything, would you like your listeners to take away from the story? Um, just live overseas for two years. <laughs> like <laughs> Bare minimum, like live overseas anywhere you possibly can. I recommend Malaysia. I can't recommend it enough. Like um, Malaysia, Indonesia, especially like so much of my life experience and how I view the world has been benefited from culturally challenging yourself. And Mm -hmm. if it doesn't mean like living overseas, like make a point to place yourself in situations where you're culturally uncomfortable because you're, Mm -hmm. you're only going to benefit from seeing other people's perspectives on the world and how happily and joyfully people can live um, in experiences that have no, no connection to you and Mm -hmm. how, important that is to erode your perception of what you think you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I love that because it seems like you have seen that there is a greater bigger more fleshed out understanding of the world by not seeing more of the world and experiencing more of the world no like choice in it you were very fortunate I feel and to have like been given so many opportunities to like see the world through like just like the basis of how you grew up and I, uh, I I just think it's great that you have been allowed those like reflections on like how deeply meaningful that is like through something like the pandemic where it's like <laughs> the whole world is is experiencing yeah, this thing all at once totally. I'm yeah. endlessly thankful <laughs> mm-hmm. it's so cool to see and again this story is just so excellent it is told in such a way that it's just like phenomenal and really like takes you in and is like surprisingly concise for a story with so much in it yeah. it is that like is what I kept just like just so the, the way that you write is just incredible it was it was a I have to give a lot of credit to <laughs> and condensing the information and not actually like parsing it out so it was 
actually more readable. So I was, well, I was just like, add more, add more. What happened here? <laughs> what? What, are, what? What is this? What were you doing there? He's like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it turned out phenomenal. Yes. And so with that, Sam, thank you again for being on this side of, a, of this side of the podcast and for letting us see you in this in, in the, on this side, on this in this light, because it is just wonderful. And I feel like this is a story that is just it's just one of those that I'm going to think about for forever and ever. So thank you again for coming on and being with us here tonight. Thanks so much for having me. Truly. Well, that concludes our first episode of the sixth season, What Speaks in Silence. We are all so excited to bring you new stories amplifying these voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear from. And you can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We also have an Instagram and Facebook if you want to get some behind-the-scenes action. We'd like to thank everyone who helps make this possible. Including our sound engineers and editors, as well as our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening in. We'll see you soon and good night! Good night! Good night! Good night! Good night. Good night.